TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Ukraine, it's not what they're telling you. Ray McGovern. On April 19, 2022, the former CIA analyst Ray McGovern spoke in a talk sponsored by the Social Justice Forum Raleigh. McGovern's CIA career began under President John F. Kennedy and lasted through the presidency of George H.W. Bush. McGovern advised Henry Kissinger during the Richard Nixon administration. Under Ronald Reagan, he chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the President's Daily Brief. McGovern had been invited by the Social Justice Forum Raleigh to fill in what was not talked about in the media regarding Ukraine. There was a palpable desire to go beyond the prevailing discussion whether Putin is a Satan or a saint and address the global consequences of any war conducted among nuclear power plants and in the shadow of nuclear weapons. Here's Ray McGovern's comment on the question of how a ceasefire could be achieved. Well, Elizabeth, thanks for the question. Uh, I wish I knew. Uh, it's very difficult to break into the mainstream media. We have to keep trying. Another thing that I have in mind is we have to get out and put our bodies into it in whatever way that we think we can do that. It used to be that uh, we could get out and demonstrate or visit our Congress people. Uh, hopefully the COVID scare will, will diminish and we'll be able to do more of that. But unless people see how acute the problem is, unless people see that, uh, you know, we've been sold a bill of goods just as we were before Iraq, just as we were during Russiagate, unless they can see that, then it's hard for them to act. Uh, the risks are very, very, very high this time. Ted Postel, who is a uh, MIT professor of physics and who is the chief intelligence advisor for the chief of naval operations in the Pentagon, he has found that Russia's early warning system of incoming attack is woefully deficient. It's about a quarter as good as ours. Now, let me explain to the degree I can. We have these really sophisticated satellites. This is no classified thing. It's well known that our satellites cover the world. Any ballistic missile that's fired, whether it's on the sea, under the sea, on land, we see it immediately, okay? Not so the Russians. And uh, Ted likes to cite a, a, a case study where a rocket went up from the northern part of Norway. It was a research rocket. They want to find out something about the Milky Way or something, right? But no one told the Russians. And as it vectored into the space where the Russians are looking right down at North Dakota and all where all our missiles are, there was a threat that that, that was incoming, okay? 
that that could have been the beginning of a nuclear attack on Russia. So Ted explains that these generals and admirals that are in the, the situation room, they don't know what to make of this and say, well, check on the, check on the ICBMs. They so checked on the ICBMs, no particular activity at the ICBM fields in North Dakota, Colorado, or Montana, okay. Whew. Well, how about, how about the North Atlantic? Well, sir, uh, you know, we don't, we can't cover the North Atlantic. What? That's the reality, folks. The Russians can't know if we send off these missiles on the Trident submarines, they don't have coverage of the seas. So what am I talking about now? I'm talking about back in the day, in my day, let's say the 70s, 80s, there would be about 35 minutes of warning time from launch to target. So a president, President Putin now, or President Biden would have half of that at least, if it was verified to decide what to do, whether they should destroy the rest of the world at the same time or not. Now, now it's not that way. The danger that Putin has spoken about for seven years now, these sites that are going into Poland and Romania, the one in Romania is finished, the ones in Poland is being finished, they're described as anti-ballistic missile sites, but all you have to do is put a CD in their computer and they turn out to be able to fire Tomahawk missiles. Uh, Putin calls them Tomahawk, Tomahawk missiles. There's no, no H in Russian, okay? So Tomahawk missiles in those sites, which can be done overnight by a new CD, okay? They can hit Moscow and they can hit the ICBM force in the western part of, of Russia in about six or seven minutes. And if they're if these same sites are equipped with hypersonic missiles, it's like four to five minutes. Now, that's not enough. That's not enough for Putin to decide whether to destroy the rest of the world. So he's got a legitimate concern there. And he knows that these ABM sites set up ostensibly to guard against ICBMs from Iran, who not only didn't have any missiles that long or nuclear wars that put, put on them. So he knows that that was a lie, that that's why they were constructed. So the ABM treaty, George Bush destroyed. The intermediate forces treaty, Trump got rid of that one. So the Russians are, are facing this, this existential, and I say that again, existential threat from uh, a NATO in the United States that doesn't take their security concerns seriously. And were those sites to be peopled by, by different missiles, Tomahawk missiles or, uh, or these uh, hyper, hypersonic missiles, uh, there's no warning time. So what's the result? Well, you know what the result is, don't you? They automate the process, automate it, okay? And so the next time you have a research scientific missile going up in northern uh, Norway, uh, well, do subordinate units now 
have the authorization to press the nuclear button? Well, the alternative is be too late for Putin to push it. Now, I don't know what the real situation is, but that is really, really dangerous. The circumstances that I described are real. And Ted Postal and other people who know a lot more about the missilery and the launching and the coverage by our satellites and by and the lack of coverage by Russian satellites. So, you know, what we're talking about here is existential threats. And uh, last thing I'll say on this is that, you know, if there's a nuclear exchange, well, Dan Ellsberg, you really, really ought to read Dan Ellsberg's book on the doomsday machine. He explains the whole thing, okay? Now, the other thing is, and this I'll leave with you, economists talk about opportunity costs. You build one aircraft and it, you could have built schools for, for a whole state for what that aircraft costs. Okay. Now, the mother of all opportunity costs, don't get this, the mother of all opportunity costs is Ukraine. The reason I say that is that we don't have a lot of time to deal with global warming. All our attention is diverted from that now. The Chinese are, are digging more coal than before. The U.S. military is the greatest provider, the worst provider of uh, those fumes that go up and destroy our stratosphere. So the mother of all opportunity costs is what Ukraine has really done to the longer term. And you don't have to have 10 grandchildren as we do to worry a little bit about what happens to the next generation and then the generation after that. If these wars and other things that aggravate the situation not ended quickly. Thank you for that. Any other questions? Uh, this is Ann Casabon. First, let me thank you, Ray. This has been really good. And I think your last point about opportunity costs, it may be a basic point, but you put it very powerfully. So thank you. This is in a way less important than that, but I would love it if you would backtrack to 2014 in Ukraine. I'd like to hear your comments on that and your comments on um, the Minsk agreements. Thanks, Ann. Uh you know, I'm going to go back to 2013 because uh, this gave a real push to the putsch that happened in 2014. What I mean is this. The neocons who are back now uh, helping Biden run foreign policy wanted to have a war in Syria. And so what happened was there was a false flag chemical attack outside of Damascus, which they blamed on Bashar al-Assad. That was on the 21st of August, 2013. John Kerry got up a, a week later and said Bashar al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad did it. He said that 35 times in one speech. Did Bashar al-Assad do it? No, he didn't. The head of national intelligence visited President Obama at the same time and, and said, no, Mr. Obama, Mr. President, uh, I know that John Kerry is a real terrific fella and that he could drive boats up the Mekong, but he's not a real good strategic planner. 
he doesn't know what he's talking about. Our our evidence is what what should we say? Uh, it's not a slam dunk. It's not a slam dunk that Bashar al-Assad did this. Now the, the illusion, of course, is George Tenet, the previous head of intelligence, telling President uh, Bush and Cheney that the, the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was a slam dunk. So here's Clapper, the director of national intelligence in the last week of August, 2013, telling Obama, look, Kerry's <laughs> uh, a great guy and I don't want to, you know, but, but he's misinformed. We can't give you an intelligence estimate. And so they put out a government estimate, which means that it was done by hacks in the White House. Now, at the same time, Obama was going to St. Petersburg for an economic summit, group of eight, I think, at the time. And so he met with Putin. And Putin said, hey, Mr. President, have a way out of your problem. I know everybody wants to make an open war against Syria, John Kerry especially, but he's not with you here. Uh, let me just tell you, we've persuaded the Syrians to destroy all their chemical weapons on a U.S. ship outfitted for such destruction under U.N. supervision. That would avoid your problem. You wouldn't have to make a war on Syria. What do you think? Well, Obama didn't have to think very long. He said, that'd be great. Okay. Now, while Kerry kept pushing for a war against Syria, uh, Obama came back and said, look, John Kerry, you go out. We're not going to go to war with Syria. Work out this deal at Geneva. And long story short, those Syrian chemical weapons were destroyed under UN supervision on a US warship. Okay. Now, Putin wrote an op-ed on September 11, 2013. And he said, you know, I'm really, really happy at the growth of mutual trust not only between our countries, but between Mr. Obama and me personally. I hope it will grow. We've avoided a war. The only thing I object to is the notion that one country is more exceptional than the others. Okay. So that was a New York Times op-ed written by Putin. Okay. So growth of trust, that's verboten. That's, you can't have growth of trust and make a lot of money for Raytheon and for Lockheed. That's, that's, that's for the birds. Okay, so what happens? The people in the State Department, Victoria Nuland and the others, uh, tell the CIA guys and all uh, to train up those, uh, those rightists, those neo-Nazis in Poland and elsewhere, and we're going to have a putsch. We're going to have a putsch on the, the middle of Kiev. I'm going to change the government because the government there now under Yanukovych uh, is a little bit too pro-Russian. And so that's what they do. Six months after the growth of trust, they do a coup in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, on the 22nd of February, 2014. Now, why is that coup appropriately called the most blatant coup in history because the intercepted conversation between our assistant secretary of state victoria newland and our ambassador in kiev jeffrey pyatt they're plotting the coup 
They're saying who will be the next prime minister? Yats for Yatsinyu. They're saying, you know, the EU doesn't like it. F the EU. They're saying, you know, we need some international personage to, to solidify this. Jake Sullivan, who works for Vice President Biden, says Biden is good to come in and make this thing stick. Okay. Now, what's extraordinary about that? Two things. Number one, they said that en clair, um, no encryption in this telephone conversation. Somebody intercepted it. And number two, it was put on YouTube. Oh, when was it put on YouTube? On the 4th of February, 2014. Oh, 4th of February. Well, you said the, the coup was the 22nd, but that was blown. Yeah, it was blown. <laughs> when I heard that thing on YouTube, I said, well, poor Yats, Yats in Yogi, he'll never be prime minister of Ukraine. And my God, Victoria Nuland using that language? F the EU? One reason we know it's authentic is because Newland apologized two days later, not for the code, but but for saying F the EU. <laughs> okay. So long story short, 18 days, if my arithmetic is good, 18 days before the coup, it was advertised on YouTube. Now what happened? Well, the coup plotters uh, were able to dislodge those people who were loyal to the government. And by the time Putin, I guess Putin thought the same thing I did. The coup is blown, too bad for Yatsenyuk. Uh, I can stay in Sochi and finish up these Winter Olympics. They didn't come back until the day later, the 23rd of February, 2014. Now, what did he do? Oh my God, the new prime minister of Ukraine said that he'd like Ukraine to join, guess what? Join NATO. He'd like to ban Russian as an official language in Ukraine. He said this right away. So Putin's with his with his advisors there, his military advisors, there. what do you do about this? Can we countenance a Ukraine in NATO? And the answer was Niet, 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 niet. Okay. okay. Now, what's our most important equity here? Well, obviously, our only, our sole warm water port for our Navy that happens to be in Crimea, a place called Sevastopol. Uh, it's been there since Catherine the Great, the time of our revolution. Okay. We've got to make sure that NATO doesn't seize Sevastopol. And so that's when they said, well, what are we gonna do about Crimea? And somebody said, well, you know, it's an accident of history that Crimea is part of Ukraine. Khrushchev just sort of out of a whim, gave uh, Crimea to Ukraine back in 54, 1954. Let's find out how the Crimeans look at this. So they had a plebiscite. The plebiscite was over 90% rejoined Russia, because they're mostly Russians there, mostly Russian speakers, so it was a no-brainer. And a month later, uh, Putin commented that, uh, yep, uh, this is what uh, the people in Crimea wanted. And besides, he said, you know, I, uh, I just, uh, just as soon, if NATO wants to visit Sevastopol, the, the Navy yard there, I'd like it to be the same way it is now, 
where they would forward a request to Moscow and, and we would say, sure, you're welcome to come. I wouldn't like it to be, I'm, I know these NATO guys are great fellows, says Putin, but I wouldn't want to have to ask them to visit the NATO port in Sevastopol. So what happened was that was the thing that started this whole business that prompted Putin to annex Crimea. Am I in favor of countries annexing? No, I'm not. Do I understand why Putin did it? I certainly do. And then the people in the Russian-speaking provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk in the east part of Ukraine, they didn't want any part of the coup government uh, banning Russian as an official language and, and all kinds of other indignities that the, the people there in the coup regime were doing on, on pro-Russians and Russians. So they decided that they would resist the encroachment of the, the coup regime. And uh, so they declared their independence. And they went to Putin, so please annex us. We want to be annexed. Well, you did Crimea, please annex us. And Putin, nothing doing, nothing doing. Crimea was a special thing. I mean, look, <laughs> um, our only all year round naval base was there. You guys work it out. Now we'll give you some support. And the Russians did, uh, uh, you know, some, some arms and some fighters, I imagine. But that's the way it evolved. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the Minsk protocols because we're talking 2014, February. What happened was the Ukrainian army, uh, such as it was, geared itself up and went out to take back Donetsk and Lugansk. They were fought to a standstill. It was really, really bloody. Most of those 14,000 people killed were killed then, okay? And people with more sense said, well, Let's stop this. Let's stop this. And the Germans and the French and the Polish at the time put the strong arm around the Ukrainian sides and said, look, stop the fighting. We'll have a ceasefire and then we'll talk. And part of the deal will be that Donetsk and Lugansk will have a measure of autonomy within the Ukrainian state, but that will be written into the constitution. Now, that never happened. And Zelensky had said it was going to happen, but he was not allowed to let it happen if indeed he wanted it to happen. Not allowed by the neo-Nazis, not allowed, I suspect, by the United States. So the Minsk Accords, as much as they tried to tamp down the situation and were endorsed at the highest level of the United Nations, mind you, they never were implemented the fly in the ointment was Ukraine. The motivation was clear. They didn't want any part of that. And, uh, and that's, that's the background to all this. And it was when Minsk really sort of fell apart that when uh, Putin decided, well, we need to finish this thing off. It's not going to be very legal, but we're going to do it. Last thing I'll say on that, it's not very legal. There are some folks that say, well, you could explain it. Certainly, it's as legal as some of the things the U.S. did. I don't think it's very legal. The other adjective used was unprovoked. It was provoked. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was provoked. And I hope some of what I said earlier this evening 
will show you that uh, Putin, in my view, is looking out for the national security of his country, does not want to be threatened in the same way that the U.S. felt threatened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Think about it. Soviet missiles right up there, right up there next to Florida, okay? That was an existential threat to us. We faced Khrushchev down. We were able to work out a deal where we removed some, some uh, missiles from Turkey, but we had the sense to avoid the worst. And when John Kennedy was meeting with his chief advisors, he always insisted that our ambassador, Tommy Thompson, who had been in Moscow, would be there. So what I'm saying here is that he had not only military advisors, he had somebody who knew Khrushchev, who knew uh, Russia almost as well as George Kennan did. Now, what does Biden have? My God, it, it sends sweat up the back of my neck here. He's got no expertise that has any, any real uh, depth to it. And so I'm afraid that unless the military is able to prevail as it has so far and say, look, Mr. Biden, we're not prepared for a two front war with China getting in this thing. Uh, these hotheads, Blinken, Sullivan and the others, and the economic advisors, I just wish better for, for Biden because I think I think he's got enough experience to know how dangerous it would be to provoke Putin into being in such a corner that he might actually might actually think of using small nuclear weapons. There's no well nuclear weapons. So again, I'm talking too much, but uh, I hope that helps. That was part of the Q and A section of a 90-minute event sponsored by the Social Justice Forum Raleigh. Ray McGovern spoke on the topic, Ukraine, it's not what they're telling you. McGovern was a CIA analyst from 1963 to 1990, serving seven U.S. presidents. McGovern advised Henry Kissinger during the Richard Nixon administration. Under Ronald Reagan, he chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the President's Daily Brief. He received the Intelligence Commendation Medal at his retirement, returning it in 2006 to protest the CIA involvement in torture. McGovern's post-retirement work includes commenting for print and TV on intelligence and foreign policy issues. You can find the full 90-minute recording of the Zoom Ukraine, It's Not What They're Telling You on Ray McGovern's website, raymcgovern.com or on YouTube under the title Ukraine, It's Not What They're Telling You. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Open the newest programs page and scroll down. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. TUC Radio is free to all radio stations 
and free as podcast online. This is an unfunded program that depends entirely on donations by listeners. You can contact TUC Radio online at tucradio.org. The email is tuc at tucradio.org. TUC Radio takes its name from an aeronautical term. Time of useful consciousness is the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness. The brief moment in which a pilot may save the plane. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.